TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Noah Breyer about brands, design, and content in the age of social media. If you had said, what is marketing 30 years ago, it was a television app, mostly. And I think if you say, what is marketing in three years, it will be a piece of content in Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or any of those other ones. Here's Debbie Miller. For companies and their brands, these are interesting times. With magazines in trouble and the TV market splintered into a thousand channels, what's your advertising strategy? And with social media, how do you keep up with what people are saying about your brand, much less how to respond? Well, companies with concerns like these go to someone like Noah Breyer. He's the co-founder of Percolate, a technology company that helps Fortune 500 companies find their way in this brave new branding world. Noah Breyer is also a blogger of 10 years standing who keeps a careful eye on media, culture, and technology. He's here to talk about some of his insights and observations, as well as his career. Noah Breyer, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you very much. So, Noah, I understand that you were the checker champion at Columbus Elementary School in third and fourth grade, but only the runner-up in second grade. What happened? I, uh, second grade, just, it didn't work out for me. I didn't find my stride until third grade, but then it was only those two years, and I was terrible after that. It was an amazing sort of moment in time where I figured out how to play checkers. I figured out some sort of inefficiencies in third grade checkers where I was slightly more brutal at it than other people, and I was willing to lose my own pieces where they were much less willing if I remember correctly. Ah. But then I think I think by fifth grade, people had will, realized that that's a, a good strategy to go with. So you taught people how to be fearless, and then they became fearless, and then you started to lose. And that's basically oh. what happened. <laughs> so you grew up in Norwalk, Connecticut, and you wrote about it on your blog and declared, growing up in Connecticut, the city was always New York. Of course, if you go somewhere else, though, the city changes. I I kind of love that idea of the city being a place that could be almost anywhere. But was New York City always the city for you? I also know you went to NYU for your undergraduate degree. Yeah, New York was always the city. My grandparents grew up here. My dad grew up here. My grandparents still live on Grand Street, 90 years on Grand Street, basically. 
You went to New York University and you got a BA in 2004. What did you actually study? That's a good question. I went to Gallatin at NYU, and Gallatin's an individualized study program. So officially, I believe my degree says I studied individualized studies. I'm not sure why they never figured out a better way to do that, but that's officially what you get your degree in. I started at NYU in the College of Arts and Sciences, and I quickly found that wasn't the place for me. Really big classes didn't sort of jibe well with my general well-being. So I switched into Gallatin pretty quickly. And and, and that's where you make your own degree. You make your own degree. So you're able to follow kind of your own path through. And so I started in one place, which was about sort of being interested in urban planning. And I ended up studying essentially what I described as kind of media, culture, and technology. The really neat thing is that I've got this string that I can sort of follow through my years of college where one led to another, led to another, led to another, and then you finally end up. And they let you basically rewrite your focus every semester. So you're constantly evolving, which to me just feels much more natural because that's kind of how my entire life has been. I've just sort of followed those paths and seen what was really interesting. And I landed in this place that was really focused on digital technology and sort of how it affected culture and how it uh, media works within kind of the pieces all play together. So did you already know back when you were in school, so from, say, 2000 to 2004, that you wanted to have a career that was based in technology in some way? No, I don't think I knew anything. Um, (laughs) Like a lot of people, I entered college not totally sure what I wanted to do, which I think is pretty normal and natural and probably reasonably healthy. I knew I liked the Internet. That was something that sort of always existed around. But like I said, I started thinking I was interested in kind of urban planning, metropolitan studies, those sorts of things. And I followed that through and became interested in education because I think when you're thinking about cities, you quickly think about the children in them and you think about sort of how they're educated and how that affects how the city works. And I became from there really interested in culture and then from culture interested in technology and specifically digital technology and media. And I got to really into McLuhan at one point and I'm still probably I'd say he's sort of the biggest influence in the way I think about media and technology. But no, that that kind of ended up, and then I ended up writing for a magazine. American Demographics. Yes. And was that via the influence of McLuhan, or was that just luck that you, or I'm assuming it's luck because it sounds like a really cool gig, but was it just sort of an accidental geographic accident? Yeah, it was pretty much a geographic accident. I was a senior in college, and I got connected with the editor somehow, I think maybe sort of through my dad via a few connections. So I ended up uh, going for an interview with the editor, and we just sort of talked, and I talked about some ideas I had, and specifically I ended up talking about Shepherd Ferry and Obey Giant and sort of building brands in unconventional ways. And this was 2004, so this was before Obama and everything else, and um, far fewer people knew who Shepard Ferry was. I mean, lots of people did, but definitely far fewer than know now. And I sort of pitched him this story. I didn't really realize it. I was, it was like April of my senior year, and he said, well, if you write that story, I'll pay you, and then if it's good enough, I'll give you a job. You'll get paid either way, but if you can make it happen, then uh, you'll get a full-time job writing 2,500-word stories every month, which... I just don't think that job exists anymore. I think, like, I'm not sure anyone has just a job to write one feature a month. Maybe staff writers at The New Yorker. Maybe. But that's a really highly coveted job. So did you write the piece on Shepard Ferry? I did end up writing the piece on Shepard Ferry, and I got the job, and that's how I ended up there. And so I was writing the 
I think it was called Media Signals, though I might be wrong. But I was as you were I, the editor of the Media Channels section. There you go. I'm glad somebody <laughs> read this down. Um, and it, I mean, it was an amazing experience for a 21 year old, 22 year old, whatever I was. I was getting to pitch and write my own stories, and for me, it was like this amazing chance to talk to all these people who I had so much respect for, and I could get them on the phone for an hour. I remember interviewing Shepard Ferry. I was in my dorm room, and I was just amazed that this could actually work, that, like, I could send this guy an email. And he answered, and then he got on the phone with me for an hour and talked about all these ideas. And I don't know. That was that was awesome. You stayed there for six months, and then you left to become the creative lead at Renegade Marketing. Now, I thought this was really interesting, and maybe that I had either misread or, or got some bad research, because in a piece that you wrote on 99U, you actually said that you don't consider yourself a designer. And so I was wondering how you became the creative lead if you weren't a designer. Actually, what happened at American Demographics is they, they sold the magazine we were working on. And so we all lost our job. So I needed to go find mm. somewhere else to go. So I, I ended up applying for a job as a copywriter. And I had no idea what a copywriter did at all. And I got the job. And basically, it was a team of 10 designers and one copywriter. And when I first started there, I was a copywriter, and I, I really... But I ended up having a much bigger say in the creative process because I was the only one working with words. Everybody else was working with visuals. And it just kind of happened that over time, I, I kind of evolved to be someone who led projects and became overseer of larger things. And it was, a again, just a kind of amazing experience for me. I, that was the first time I ever worked with designers, and I've been fascinated by them, I think, ever since. Really? What um, fascinates you most? They just are able to do things I can't do. I, I can't design. I can't, I can't think that way. And I like working with people who can just do things I can't do. And, and I, I think what I've been able to develop over my career that maybe I'm most proud of is I think I'm really good at briefing designers. Um, and That's I think a skill. I, that I, is a totally, real skill. I think I'm good at getting really good work out of designers. But part of that comes from the fact that I have no concept that I can do it myself. That's probably what helps. Now, I understand that you are a big proponent of teaching yourself code, and you've written about how the knowledge of code might be the literacy of the 21st century. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure if I'd, I, I'd still sort of stick on that one, that I think it's still the literacy, that it will be the literacy, but it, it definitely could be. So the sort of whole story, I, I taught myself to write code because I just... I hate having to rely on other people to sort of make the things that float around in my head. And so I really wanted to be able to do that. And I, when I was able to start building my own projects and sort of doing my own things, you just get an amazing freedom from that. And I think so much of how we express ourselves happens digitally these days. And being able to create things and build experiences just, I don't know, it matters. You taught yourself code without any books? You just yeah. sort of went and poked around and figured it out? So it goes sort of further back than that. So when I was a kid, I taught myself HTML and I was building websites. I, I thought this was like the biggest racket in the entire world. I was like 
13 and I was charging somebody $1,000 to build their website. So I had some sort of like underlying understanding of how to make stuff, at least with HTML. And and I had kind of messed around with WordPress and kind of taught myself little pieces. And finally, I just got fed up with it. And so I was like, I'm going to figure this out. And no, I didn't approach it with books. I, I tried with books a bunch of times and I found books kept failing me. And I think this is where some of the sort of literacy uh, metaphors come in is I found books failed me in a lot of the same ways like French class failed me in seventh grade where they insisted on teaching me how to conjugate verbs and I just wanted to talk to somebody in French. And I think when you read code books, they're really focused on teaching you how to do things with lots of data, for instance, how to use arrays, how to how to do all these different pieces that are really important if you're building web applications. But for the vast majority of the people in the world who might just want to learn code so that they can make some idea they have in their head come to life, you don't need most of it. There's some like really basic underpinning pieces that you need. So I ended up kind of trying over and over again with books. And then finally, I had an idea and I was like, I'm going to figure out how to make it. It's interesting that you differentiate between building something and designing something. Do you see a fundamental difference? I think I do. I think I see a fundamental difference. I play at least part of the role a designer plays in thinking through an idea and a solution and a problem and understanding and sort of trying to have empathy with whoever I'm trying to solve that problem for. But I can't always imagine the best ways to solve those problems and the best ways to sort of communicate it, you know? So I can come up with this idea, which is brand tags or how much does it buy or any of these different pieces, but I can't always take it to the next level, which is to think about what is the best way to kind of put this together to make it more than just a sort of idea I threw out onto the internet. And I do think there there's some sort of completeness to design, that it's a very, it's a bigger process that starts, you know, maybe I get 30% in, but then there's a lot more that happens after that. And, you know, I, I certainly try to do some of it, right? I just, I think I'm I'm not really good at it. Now, it seems like one of the common denominators in the various jobs and initiatives that you've created leading up to Percolate were really centered around branding in one way or another. Did you always have this fascination with brands or is it something that you feel that you maybe fell into via the jobs that you had? Yeah, I think I've sort of been fascinated with brands for a while. I don't know that I can pinpoint the exact moment, but certainly when I presented that article, I've been interested in graffiti forever, which is how I fell into being interested in Shepard Fairey's work and Obey Giant. And I was definitely really amazed at this ability to sort of create this icon that could spread organically in these interesting ways. And I think getting to work with brands is getting to sort of play with culture in Oh, absolutely. Ways. I absolutely feel that the condition of brands reflects the condition of our culture. Even beyond that, I, I so I give this talk at Percolate when new people start and I talk about why I like brands and why we encourage people to like brands. And part of it comes from this experience of building brand tags. So brand tags asked people to type in the first thing that popped into their head. Well, you created brand tags. I you did. woke up in the middle of the night. You had this idea. Don't don't undermine your own efforts. Okay, so I did create <laughs> brand tags based on an article from a friend of mine that basically said brands live in people's heads. And that lived in my head that just sort of like wormed in there and stuck in there. And I was like, wow, that's a really interesting concept. And basically what he's saying is like brands are not owned by the people who make 
brands. They're owned by the people who experience them and that the sort of ideas that we all have about the brands that we interact with are real and they're the real definition of brands and as much as the people who work at the company or the people who work on the brand want to say otherwise, like they don't really have a right and that those ideas are correct. So you woke up in the middle of the night an hour and a half later, you bought the domain brandtags.net because the dot-com version was taken. And you had a working prototype with nine brands loaded in and started it. <laughs> so brand tags was you had the name of the brand and then people could just write one word to describe it. The logo, actually, not the name of the brand. The logo, yes. Big distinction. Yeah. <laughs> so then what happened? So I woke up in the middle of the night. I kind of put it together. I chose some first brands. And I kind of showed it to some friends and showed it to some people at work. And I knew it worked when the Google one said search really big. And I was like, okay, uh, something is working here. So essentially what it was doing is taking all the results and making it tag cloud. So the words that people said more were bigger and the words that they said less were smaller. And then from there, I'm not sure what happened. It just sort of exploded on the Internet, as things on the Internet sometimes do. It it kind of went everywhere, and, and it got picked up, and people found it really interesting. And then I kept getting all these emails from brands, from agencies, from sort of anyone asking me to add their logo. They were really interested in being part of this. Lots of new logos came in, and I just kept adding them all. And eventually there were hundreds of logos and millions of replies. And I think I had... Millions of tags. Yeah, something like 10 million tags at the end. It was sort of amazing. I created this sort of thing that gave people a really interesting snapshot of what people feel and think about brands. You know, it certainly wasn't perfectly scientific. Like, the distinction between the name and the logo is really interesting. And in probably a perfect scientific study, you would have had either sort of pure logo marks or pure word marks. You know, but that's not a reality of how brands operate or at least the logos I could get my hands on. So it just gave you a pretty good sense of of kind of how the whole world worked and what people really thought of. And and it was free. And I think people really just liked it. And I kept hearing how amazingly accurate it was, too. And I was working in an agency at the time, and I sort of joked that it didn't tell anybody anything they didn't know about brands. It just gave you an excuse to tell the client what you already knew. So it was like, it's not us calling your baby ugly. It's everybody else. And we all know this, and we know we've got something to fix. And so let's sort of take the blinders off for a little bit and think about how we really solve for that. Now, do you think that Nike's consistency in those degrees to their consumers or to consumers in general is coming from Nike directly? Or do you think that that's being manifested somehow by the consumer, if it's really the consumer that has that impression? I think it's a combination of all of them. So, you know, Nike certainly sort of sets out with a couple ideas and they work with sports uh, figures and athletes and then people wear them and your feeling comes from any number of these different experiences you have with them. So certainly they haven't said that you must feel this, right? They don't say Nike equals performance, Right. I mean, sometimes maybe they do, but mostly they don't. Right. They sort of say in all these other ways by showing someone dunking or showing someone doing something else or just watching someone play outside in Nikes or walking into a store and seeing them positioned in a certain way at a certain angle. And it can't possibly be perfectly put together. Right. Like they can't possibly have said that every single piece and every single element goes in this order and will be experienced in this way because you can't make that happen. But they're trying to set up all these different pieces and have succeeded in 
setting them up to make us feel pretty consistently. And so while it does live in our heads, it certainly is sort of guided by them. And where it sort of gets even more complicated is to think about how we guide each other from there, right, and the sort of secondary and kind of tertiary effects. Probably a lot of the feelings people have for Nikes is not from watching the athletes play, but watching people they know. Because Nike is such a great example of a pervasive brand that is so consistent in terms of its point of view and also its way of being understood globally, is it driven by brand management or is it driven by the feeling that people can project when they are wearing Nike? We could probably use Apple as as the same type of example, where is it brand management or is it consumer management? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think probably the answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's it's some combination. And that, I think, at the end is what makes them so amazing to me is like thinking about this now and building the brand of Percolate. You don't know exactly which combination of pieces is going to succeed, but you know when it's succeeding and you can watch it succeed and it sort of does this amazing thing. And I think the one thing we do know is that it's the sum total of all of them, right? So it's the sum total of all the interactions and experiences and feelings. And somehow they come together, kind of boil and stir, and we have a a brand. You co-founded Percolate in 2011 with your partner, James Gross, who you met while you were at Like Mind, which was another initiative that you started that was really to take your online relationships offline. What made you decide to start your own company together? So I built Brandtags, and it sort of floated around for a while, and then I got an offer to sell it. And uh, Who wanted to buy it? Somebody wanted to buy it, and it was the second project I'd ever worked on on the Internet and wrote in code for, and I was like, yes. Uh, partly because I really didn't want to go into the brand research field. I did consider turning it into a company, but I was like, I just don't think that's for me. So I ended up selling it to a company called Solve Media. And for the first time, I sort of had enough money to not have a job for like three months. So I was like, maybe I should start a company. And at the time, I had been working on some sort of components. And James and I had been talking about a couple different ideas. And essentially, what we were seeing uh, from very different sides, he was at a publisher, I was at an agency, was just the explosion of content on the web and brands as content creators in a bunch of different ways. At that time, it was mostly blogging. Clearly, it's it's not that much anymore. But what do you do as a brand? How do you sort of scale this was the sort of challenge that we kept seeing. And I kind of explained it's like what we were seeing was the amount of content brands were producing was growing exponentially. And the production and cost model was continuing to scale linearly. The amount of content brands needed to produce Tomorrow was 10 times more than what they produced the day before, and we weren't coming up with new ways to make it. So we sort of got excited about starting a company and trying to solve that problem with technology and with products that actually focused on the kind of production process. I've had a number of conversations with people trying to pinpoint the moment that art and editorial went to content and assets. Mm-hmm. And I, and I don't know exactly when that happened, but it seems to have fully happened. So what do you mean by content? Yes. Um, <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> I think I mean it in a really broad sense to mean almost anything. I think that it's a word that sort of encapsulates everything from a movie to a tweet. 
So uh, things. Things that are produced kind of. Yeah, it's a, a pretty a pretty broad one. I would say the sort of realm and world that we focus on is pretty much things that are produced that will live on the web and in social media. You describe Percolate as a thoughtful technology company, which makes me feel like it has a real consciousness, and I'm assuming that that's intentional. What do you mean by a thoughtful technology company? So one of the things that's fun about starting your own company is you get to sort of test all these ideas out. And actually, a lot of it is that you get to sort of make all these things that you think about how things should work, work that way. And one of the things I think James and I sort of decided on at the beginning and we really believed in is that you should be thoughtful about how you do everything. And I think this kind of relates back to how I feel about design in general, which is that design is the process of sort of building out a complete experience and thinking through every single point along the way and how it should function to best solve the problems that it deals with. And I think what we really wanted to encourage and create was a a company and a culture and a product that felt thoughtful, that sort of left people feeling like this is a better way to solve this, but also for people inside the company left them feeling like, well, if this isn't a good way to solve it, maybe I should find a better way. You say that your mission is to help brands create content at social scale. So I have two questions. What does that mean exactly? What does social scale mean? And then why do brands need help doing this? I think on the the first question on social scale, like specifically what we meant there and um, what we've seen with the explosion of social media and mobile. And we put those two things together a lot because I think what's happened is they've sort of combined to create this much larger entity than either of them were independently. You know, people buy phones to be social, right? And social media has grown over the last four years with the explosion of smartphones around the world. You know, what's really occurred in marketing over the last five years, four years, three years, is this total shift in kind of what it means to be a marketer and how many people you can speak to and how much you need to speak to them and where you need to speak to them. And it's just all sort of shifted. The The kind of best example I've used recently is the World Cup final in 2010, I think 900 million people watched it. I think that was it, 800 million, something like that. More people than that are daily active users on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. In the past, global marketing was once every four years, you bought a World Cup sponsorship or an Olympic sponsorship. And now every day, more people than that on just three platforms. And there are another 20 platforms that have over 50 million daily users. So like our ideas of what it means to be a marketer has scaled. It's just grown. It's totally changed. And I think I use scale because it, it's not linear growth, right? Like this is exponential. This is sort of through the roof. Yeah, it's staggering. Yeah. So do you actually create the content for the brands that you're working with? No. No, we don't. We are building a platform. So the way we think about it is we show this thing we call the content clock a lot. And it, it tries to sort of think through what are the steps brands take in creating marketing? And one of the things actually on the sort of content question is that we've been toying with just calling it marketing rather than calling it content because I think we mean roughly the same thing. But those steps kind of look like they they go through planning and then inspiration and sort of ideation, sourcing, and those are for the assets and the different pieces. And then they go into creation and they actually produce a piece of marketing. 
through to publishing and putting it out into the world and then engagement, which is a sort of relatively new one where they're sort of listening for the feedback and then finally to analysis. And then the sort of whole loop ideally starts again, right? And you pull all the analysis back and work it into the planning. And what we've built is a tool that allows brands to kind of manage that whole process in a single place. And the real reason for that, like I said, is as these brands become more social, more mobile, more global, like all these sort of big macro trends, you know, our kind of core idea is that the marketers are going to need technology to help them be marketers, that you can't sort of be ad hoc anymore. It's not going to work to kind of like send off a brief and cross your fingers and kind of take the exact same methods that we're going to need to be more reliant on systems. And they're they're just going to have to become more product thinkers. Like they're going to have to think about marketing as a product, not about, not as a sort of often magical process. <laughs> well, it seemed like in, in the old days, you'd go and brief an advertising agency and all of your marketing would likely be on television or with some print ads. And now you have brands that are tweeting, you know, every 20 minutes or so. Do you think that all brands should be tweeting every 20 minutes? No, I, I think that it's pretty dependent. You know, I don't think brands need to be tweeting well, I'm, every I'm, 20 I'm being, minutes. And I'm being right. facetious, of course. really. I, but I'm just I think, wondering if you think that brand, most brands should be engaged in this medium. Well, I think it's hard to call it a medium because Twitter and Facebook and Tumblr and Instagram and Pinterest are just such different creatures. They're all so sort of fundamentally different. And, and I think one of the big challenges is that at first, they thought they were the same, and so you could take a Facebook post and stick it on Twitter or stick it on Pinterest, and it turns out that's just not really how it works in the same way that you can't take a television commercial and stick it in a magazine. But I do think brands will absolutely have to be on these platforms, and you know they'll be on them in all different ways, but this is where things are going, and largely this is where things are going because the phone is where things are going, and phone and social have merged so your partner, James Gross, has said the only way to be a good content creator is to be constantly consuming. For decades, agencies have served this function for brands, consuming culture and audience research to match up with the brand and create beautiful content. This process works with incredible efficiency until you have to move into real time. The demand for 10 to 20 pieces of short-form content daily proves to be at a breaking point. To be truly effective at this sort of scale, what we call social scale, you need a workflow that allows you to produce as you consume. So I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit about how you do that. How do you produce as you consume? So we were talking about television commercials a little earlier. Television commercials say they have a 21-week production cycle, right? You sort of go through and you do the planning and you do the ideation and you sort of go into creative and then production. And by the time all is said and done, you're, you're 21 weeks, say 15 weeks if it's fast. Clearly, new systems need to emerge when you move to creating much more quickly and being sort of responsive with your content. And I think, you know, this is one of those places where lots of people have questions about whether brands should be that. And I don't know that we have a definite answer to, you know, should brands be sort of real-time content creators? Should they be worried about tweeting during the Oscars and during the Olympics and sort of being in the stream just like one of your friends? I think we don't know. But what we do know is that brands need to sort of totally rework the way they work to allow them to do this much more quickly. And I think 
it's safe to say that sort of marketing is moving in the same way that product production is moving, which is to be much more agile. That kind of notion and building a system to allow marketers to be much more agile is kind of what we were thinking and what we were saying. So do you feel that consumers want this type of information, are looking for this type of content? What makes somebody want to follow a brand on Facebook or Twitter? The first thing to say is that one of the interesting things that happened with Facebook and Twitter over the last year is that they're much less worried about the follow. And I think we'll continue to see that. I think they're recognizing that. But they also realize that there are opportunities to create interesting connections between brands and people. And I do think fundamentally people like brands, right? Oh, Um, yeah, absolutely. And I do think they're interested in the things they produce and the content. What's interesting about these platforms, and there's been a sort of theory rattling around in my brain for a little while, is in order to think about what you get out of buying advertising, you generally get sort of one of three things, right? You either get scale, pure scale, right? And that's like typically why you bought television. You get targeting, interest targeting, which is why you bought American Demographics or another kind of trade magazine because you knew the people in there were the right people. They're interested in the right sorts of things. Or you got intent targeting, and that's sort of what you got out of Google, right? So I know that you're ready to buy a TV because you're searching for exactly the right things to do that. And what's sort of interesting about what Facebook and Twitter have the opportunity to do, because they know so much about the interests, is that they can start to combine all of these different pieces. They've got the scale. Facebook has over a billion people on the platform. They've got the interest, so they can do the interest targeting, but they can combine it with the scale. And theoretically, what they can start to do is surface things that you would be interested in before you know you're interested in them. And that's kind of the holy grail of marketing. That's why most brands spend the amount of money they spend is to let you know about the things that you don't yet know you want. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's probably just a thing. I think it's it's a reality of the world. Um, I think it's a reality of the economy. I think that there are certainly bad sides of consumerism, but there's also lots of good sides of consumerism. And I don't know that it necessarily means buy more stuff. It could just mean buy better stuff. But I think we're probably going to buy stuff no matter what. So I've come to peace with it. You talk about how Percolate learns from every reaction that it gets better over time. And I'm wondering how it does that. Do you use algorithms? Is it coding? Is it magic behind the sort of curtain? Um, No, not a lot of magic. I think one of the things uh, actually we've learned is that you have to be really careful with magic because sometimes it confuses people. In what way? Um, In what way? Well, I think people like to generally understand why they're seeing the thing in front of them. And so sometimes if you're using sort of algorithmic magic and you haven't clearly explained how it functions, then they they find it sort of off-putting. We want to know that we're still in charge of the robots. That's like really important to us. I think it's sort of like underlying need. But I think kind of most importantly, we, we've got this concept of what we call the building blocks. I spend a lot of time thinking about frameworks. I'm sort of obsessed with frameworks. I really like it. And so this is one of those frameworks. And the basic idea is that there are these four or five things that everything you produce as a marketer needs to consider, right? And so it's uh, audience, platform, business objective, brand, which is sort of like 
the brand as a whole, but specifically we think about it in terms of what are the big brand pillars, what are the sort of big areas we talk around. And then trigger and trigger and campaigns are sort of aligned. But I think those first four are, are the really important ones. And so essentially those are the questions that as a marketer you ask yourself, who is the audience for this piece of marketing, right? This is kind of what goes into your brief, right? Like if you think about what the brief is, it's like who's the audience, where is it going to live, what are the sort of key brand messages we need to deliver, and then what is the business objectives? What are we trying to accomplish? That's you know, it's roughly a brief. And so what we do inside Percolate is we use those to essentially start to understand what's working best at the intersection of the different ones. I'm still trying to sort of draw a really good picture of this, but I imagine it's this giant three-dimensional matrix, right? If you think about sort of these different components, at the intersection of each set of components, you have a different set of recommendations and outcomes. And So sort of like algorithmic market research. Kind of. I, I think of about it more like trying to take what – I spent some time as a, a communication strategist. Um, I was at a place called Naked Communications. And what we were building when we were building communication strategies was essentially sort of something that seems really obvious, which is just something that says, hey, let's think about sort of what the business objective is and try to align that with a set of messages and the platform that is going to be most effective at delivering that business objective. And that actually we should use different media platforms like television is going to be better at some stuff than print, which although it is a very obvious when you say it out loud, if you spent time in the world of brands as we have, uh, you know, it doesn't always work that way. And often it just all gets sort of tied together. And so I think about it more as like trying to sort of take a lot of the work I did as a strategist and a lot of those frameworks we used as strategists and trying to program them into systems. So, you know, one of the really easy ways I explain this is like if you think about brand guidelines that we build as marketers, in reality, they're kind of a set of rules or a lot of them are very clear rules with kind of binary choices. You can use this logo and not that logo, or you can use this logo in this place and not in that place, or this color and this font. And actually, rules like that translate to code beautifully. Code works best with very, very specific rules. It's a little harder with voice, where it's a little more nuanced. But when you're talking about very specific sets of rules, you can you can apply those. And so, in a way, that's the kind of simplest piece of the system, is to take that big book of brand guidelines that you cross your fingers and hope somebody in another market follows when they're creating their piece of marketing and programming it into the system to say, well, they have to follow it. It's just in there. It's the rules. And then to build beyond that is to say, who are the audiences? What are the platforms we're communicating through? And start to be able to see, well, these pillars seem to work best against this business objective, or these platforms seem to work best when we're speaking to these audiences. And starting to be able to learn over time and actually evolve the strategies that really we just sort of build on paper. And so what would be the deliverable for a project or a client commissioning you, or if a client were to subscribe to your service, what do you deliver to them? Sure, they get access to Percolate. Percolate is a product somebody signs in and actually uses it. And so what happens here is that we go through this onboarding process and we sort of try to build this matrix out, right? We're trying to get at what needs to occur at these different intersections. What do we believe the key messages are that we need to deliver at this intersection of platform audience and business objective? 
and we take all that information, we program it back into the system, and it becomes a set of prompts and guidelines. And literally, I mean, some of it is just we have an image editor that's really lightweight, like very, very lightweight version of something that looks like Photoshop, um, mostly for sort of placing logos on images and making really, really lightweight things. And you can set those rules. So you can just say, hey, the logo can only go up here. And literally, the logo can only go up there. Um, You don't have a choice. It always has the right spacing around it because computers are really good at saying you always have the right spacing. And so you're not actually creating the content, but are you inspiring the brand managers or the marketers to create their own content or to use content sort of online that's already there to help support their values. Yeah, it's a system that works in a bunch of different ways. But yeah, we're not creating any of the content. So they sign in to Percolate and, you know, the first thing they do is they might use the content planner, taking sort of what exists now, building your content plans in Excel and moving them into somewhere where you can actually collaborate on them and work together. From there, there are places where you can source content. You know, we have access to Getty Images and Shutterstock. So if you need stock photos, you can get them straight through Percolate. You can search their entire database. You can then edit those in a really lightweight way. You can share them across markets. You can look at what's working best in another market. You can actually publish out to a whole bunch of different platforms, Facebook and Twitter, your websites or a whole bunch of other ones. So it sort of does all these different pieces that essentially, you know, we're trying to pull together and, and essentially create a kind of what we call a system of record for marketing, like an operating system for marketing, something that covers all of these different pieces of what you need to do, what your job is as a marketer, and bridging really the gap between the brand manager and the agency, because most often, at least in the Fortune 500, it's the agency who's on the ground creating that on a day-to-day basis. I read that you're working to define the future of brand marketing and that you want to be the torchbearers for the value of content as a marketing tool. How can you best envision what is possible for brands using content? Why is that something that they should be thinking about and why is that important? I think the reality is brands are pretty comfortable with content already. And I don't remember specifically saying torchbearer. That's a little heavy-handed. But um, (laughs) uh, marketers have actually always been pretty good at creating content, like advertising is content and um, a lot of other marketing materials are content. So we're trying to build the sort of underlying technology to help brands kind of live in this new age where content takes on a very different meaning. Right. And I think if you had said, what is marketing 30 years ago, it was a television ad mostly. And I think if you say, what is marketing in three years, it will be a piece of content in Facebook, Twitter or Instagram or any of those other ones. So you started your business in 2011 with one office in New York. And from what I can tell now, looking at your website, you have offices in New York, London, Austin, San Francisco and Chicago. And yesterday I read on your website that you have 37 job openings. How are you managing this volumetric growth culturally within the organization? I have no idea. (laughs) Um, No, I – yeah, it's crazy. It's really, really hard. So we started January 2013 with something like 27 people and we started January 2014 with 102 or something like that. I think that we got a couple of things right at the beginning. I think one of the things that we recognized when we started the company, I think a lot of people leave companies to start 
startups because they want to sort of abandon all the process and all those pieces. And I think we were very willing to say, okay, well, we're not going to abandon all that. We want to build a really big company, so let's sort of think about it that way. And I think that set us up a little better to kind of deal with that. But then I think we just kind of dealt with it. And I think one of the things, we take culture super seriously. And I I gave this talk today. So every two weeks I give this talk. And this is one of the ways we've started to answer this. I give a a two-hour talk to anyone new who started over the last two weeks about the history and culture of the company. And it's a chance to talk about all of these different pieces, what we believe in, why we believe in it. Also a chance for them to answer questions. And, you know, I think one of the things I say in there is that there's two things inside a company where you can invest a dollar and potentially get a hundred. And one of them is brand, where I think we've seen it in lots and lots of places. You can invest a dollar in your brand and get back a hundred or a thousand or a million. And the other, I think, is culture. Culture to me is about everybody understanding the mission and vision and values of the company. It creates an organization that is able to act fairly autonomously, right? If everybody has a good understanding of what they're supposed to do and the way the company behaves, then you can trust everybody to make decisions in the most appropriate way and you don't need to sit over them. And the culture is the thing that communicates that, right? So new people start and the reason they're able to understand those things is because the culture. You know, I think often culture gets to mean perks and all these other, but really to me that's what culture is at its essence. And so we've spent a lot of time and invested a lot of effort and in turn money in making sure everyone who starts has a really, really solid understanding of that. And one of the ways is this two-hour meeting. But, you know, your first week at Percolate, something like 30 hours of it is probably scripted out for you. So my last question for you. I understand you have a vegetable strategist at Percolate. What's that about? I don't know that we actually have a vegetable strategist at Percolate, though I, I guess it's on Kate your website. sort of. So um, uh, uh, James is fiance. Kate is a chef and was, until very recently, cooking for us a few times a week at Percolate and bringing in lunches and breakfasts and things like that. And we made her an apron that said vegetable strategist. Unfortunately, we reached the breaking point for Kate's kitchen when when we hit about a hundred and uh, <laughs> um, Baron Poppy, her company, could no longer uh, no longer supply Percolate with enough food. Well, congratulations on all your success. It's absolutely extraordinary, Noah. Thank you for being on Design Matters today. Thank you. You can find out even more about what Noah Breyer is thinking on his blog, noahbreyer.com, or learn more about his business at percolate.com. I'd like to thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainy Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate 
No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.